Good morning, Trinity family, uh, to all those who are gathering in person, to those who are online. What a joy it is to be able to spend this time together. Sorry I'm not with you in person today on the last couple of days of dealing with COVID. Uh, hopefully, Lord willing, we'll be with you uh, in person next week. Thank you for the many ways in which uh, many of you reached out and encouraged me with with texts or emails or just you know prayer encouragement. That's great. Really appreciate that. Especially appreciate those of you who last Sunday went out and bought themselves some real sugar soda, took pictures of that to share with me how awesome that is. Thank you for those pictures. Really, I mean that. Uh, also, it gives the preacher encouragement that y'all are listening. So that's awesome um, to know that that maybe some of this is sinking in, right? Anyway, like I said, Lord willing, should be with you all again in person next week. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Revelation. We're going to resume our series in Revelation this week. We're going to be in Revelation 14. We're going to consider the whole chapter, but we're just going to start reading uh, verses 1 through 5, and we'll work through the rest of it as we go. Um, The word should be on the screen for us this week, uh, but I would encourage you to have your Bible open, uh, your phone or your tablet or what have you, uh, as you follow along. Uh, You can see the scope of this chapter Very interesting and challenging, but hopefully encouraging. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 5 to start our time this morning and then ask God to be with us. Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, And like the sound of loud thunder, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpses playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you for your word. And as we come to this passage, we pray that you would be with us. That you would be with the preaching, hearing, the receiving, believing, trusting of this, your word, to your glory and our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the 2003 Pixar movie, Finding Nemo, there is a well-known scene where the timid and uncertain Marlin gets the hopeful, zestful encouragement to just keep swimming from his new friend, Dory. Just keep swimming. In the scene, they descend into the deeps of unknown, darkening waters with all sorts of predators seen and unseen around them. As they swim down, humming along to Dory's wise words of just keep swimming, something bright and shiny lures them in. A female deep-sea anglerfish lures unsuspecting fish in with its mesmerizing light only to inhale them with a large mouth and sharp teeth. The animated version of this anglerfish isn't that much of an exaggeration of what they look like in life. They're terrified. And yet there are those those words 
that Dory hummed, those wise words, words that you might be humming to yourself right now, just keep swimming. Revelation 14 serves as that same sort of encouragement. Just keep swimming. There are predators and things that are unknown and unseen all lurking around. Just keep swimming. Just keep holding on to Christ. This kind of encouragement comes to us while letting us know what will happen to those predators seen and unseen. And in a way, it brings to us what I hope to be even more compelling reasons to just keep swimming. While life is hard and evil is real, God is in control and Jesus wins. So hold on. Just keep swimming. As we consider Revelation 14, we're going to see that this chapter serves as as a as a reminder to hold on. And at the the heart of holding on, we're going to find some things for ourselves, some encouragements for us to to do just that, hold on. The heart of holding on sees two things that our chapter will bring out for us. First, the heart of holding on sees the end of holding on, sees where the holding on leads to. And the heart of holding on sees the encouragement to hold on, the encouragement to keep holding on, to just keep swimming. And so we're going to move through this chapter, considering those two things. And the first that we're going to consider is the end of holding on. Where does this holding on lead? And that was actually the passage that we opened with in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. The end of holding on ultimately is glory. The glory where God and the redeemed dwell together. That's where this holding on gets to. It doesn't get to some other waiting around period or maybe some lesser thing that we can conceptualize in our head. The holding on to Christ in waters dark and murky and deep in the world that we live in is ultimately leading us to the place where glory is beheld with with eyes as we dwell with God forever. And so let's think through that together in those first five verses. First of all, it's where where we're ending and where this holding on ends is where God and the redeemed dwell together. Revelation 14.1. Again, it says, Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Some things to consider from that. First of all, Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the place that we would say like heaven. It's, it's where God and man dwells together. It's, it's a place that's fixed. It's secure. It's safe. It's great. It's forever. Mount Zion is a code, a, a picture, an anticipation of that place where God and man dwell together. I think of Psalm 125, verse 1, that says this about Mount Zion. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. 
What's encouragement right out of the gate of this chapter is that the end of our holding on is to be in that forever safe, secure, abiding place where God and his people dwell together. And at that Mount Zion stood someone, stood the lamb. This lamb is the rescued, or excuse me, the resurrected, reign, ruling, victorious King Jesus. He is in the midst of his people. He is with his people. The end of our holding on is to behold our resurrected, reigning, ruling, and returned King Jesus. What a glorious encouragement in the midst of a life that's hard, where faith wanes and doubt lurks and lingers in our hearts to know that our, at the end of our holding on is King Jesus with us, for us. And along with that lamb, we see 144,000. That means all, the totality of God's redeemed people. A few sermons back when we were in Revelation 7, we came across that number, 144,000, and it's a, it's a picture of the all-encompassing people of God, all of the redeemed, not just some specific subset of the redeemed. It's referring to the whole, the totality of all of God's people. Not just some, not the, not many or most, but all. Think of uh, John chapter 6 when Jesus was speaking uh, to his disciples and, and those who were listening in. And he said these words, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The picture here, Revelation 14, is that picture. All of God's people, all of the redeemed, Jesus gathers up. We'll consider that encouragement more later in our chapter. But there it is, the beginning of our chapter. And then we find, as we see this Mount Zion scene, uh, we see some more things about what's going on there. So let's go ahead and read verses 2 and 3 of Revelation 14. And I, had a ver- I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They were singing a new song. And as we considered last week, uh, our reasons, uh, the character of joy and our reasons for joy are all wrapped up in God. And so there they are in glory, um, where God and man dwells together, singing a new song. Because of a new reality. Their song was not a song of anticipation. Their song that they were singing was a song of realization. They they were no longer looking forward to the day. They were singing of the day in the day. That's the end of our holding on is is that we get to sing this new song. And the holding on that we have now is later a resting in and a rejoicing over all that God has done for us in the redeemed, for our redemption. Now, only the redeemed will know the song. So that means only faith in Christ gets to hear this melody. That this melody won't be on the ears of those who don't trust Christ. And so it's even here compelling for us today to 
keep holding on. And for those who might be with us who are wrestling with this whole religion or Christianity or the gospel or Jesus, or still wrestling with what does that even mean to them, I would just encourage you and compel you that that what God has done for us in Christ to rescue us from our sin and to restore us right with him is the sweetest sound to our ears. Brings life and restores us right. And in the end of all that holding on to Jesus through this world, there will be a glorious song that we get to sing. And that song will only be heard by the redeemed. This continues on our passage. And so let's look at the last two verses of 1 through 5, verses 4 and 5 together. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These who have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God in the land. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now there's an interesting aspect in this verse and and then also one that gets drawn out later in our chapter that deals with um, using um, sexual symbolism to convey spiritual truths. Uh, the Bible often does that. It equates sexual symbolism uh, to, com- to vividly convey spiritual realities so that if one was faithful in their sexuality, faithful in their relationship and a husband-wife sort of dynamic and there was purity in their sexuality it was a vivid word picture of their spiritual faithfulness their spiritual purity and then oftentimes we read through the bible the whole scope of the bible where there is unfaithfulness spiritually speaking where there's a rejection of god that it often shows up in the way that we live and often associated with it manifesting in very uh, uh, vivid sexual sins So there's some sort of dynamic that we can all understand in some level in which um, the sexual symbolism is conveying a spiritual reality and how that spiritual reality can then also manifest itself in the way in which we live. And so the the point of this is to, to really drive home the vividness and the seriousness and the urgency of spiritual purity using an imagery that we can kind of conceptually get of what's going on when we remain faithful and what goes on when we are unfaithful. And so the people who are gathered around the resurrected, reigning, ruling, returned King Jesus are those who have held on to him through faith, who have not bailed on him in any way. It is those who, anyway, in the sense that they bailed on him and rejected his claims, and so on and so forth. Because we all struggle. Our faith wanes and strengthens and, <laughs> and sinks. And, and so hear me, hear me rightly on that. It is these, it says, who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, now imagine that scene with me. Imagine the scene of sheep joyfully bounding on and around the shepherd as he leads them forward. And here, the shepherd happens to be the lamb who was slain. <laughs> Jesus is both the, the, the greatest lamb and also the greatest shepherd. But there's a, a picture here that I want you to see, and I don't want you to miss. This bounding, joyful scene of l- lambs 
with their shepherd. The sweetness and the security that such a scene implies. That the lambs can just just be carefree, joy-filled as they are with their shepherd. And so taking all of this in, the encouragement here for us is that the end of all our holding on, even when it's hard and difficult and challenging in this hard world, the end is better than what you will find along the way. There isn't anything in this life that you're going to find along the way that is better than the end of where holding on goes. This passage is to help us see that the end of holding on is better than the bright, shiny things that you will see along the way in the deep, dark, murky waters of this world. You will be tempted to make your life about other stuff, good stuff even. But none of those things will be better than what you will receive at the end of where holding on leads. The glory of dwelling with God knowing the forever sweetness and security is to help us not bail from the journey when it is hard and challenging and difficult and overwhelming. Because life is hard and evil is real in this world. And if we make this world and its pleasures our aim, we will be gravely gravely disappointed, which is where our passage takes us next. It gives us encouragement to hold on, to get to that end that we've just seen in Revelation 14, 1 through 5, to get to that end, to hold on to Christ, to get to that beautiful place at the end where we know the sweetness and security being in the presence of our King, our Shepherd, the Lamb who was slain. Revelation 14, 6 through 20, the rest of the chapter give us encouragement to hold on. In fact, there are seven encouragements to keep holding on. Seven encouragements to hold on. We're going to move through each one and read the relevant verses as we do so. But there are seven of them. And the first of the seven that we find in the rest of this chapter is the gospel is greater. The gospel is greater. Let's read verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead and with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The good news that there is a way of peace with the returning king is the gospel. Once he gets here, justice arrives. Until he gets here, he's announced his peace terms with people, with humanity. Here are the peace terms. Here's how you can be right with me. It's the gospel. It is trusting in me and my life, death, and resurrection for you. By putting your faith in me, you will experience forgiveness of sins, that you'll be adopted into God's family. You'll be declared right and that you will belong uh, to me. These are the peace terms. Reject this. Then when I arrive, justice comes with me. The gospel is this good news of peace terms of the returning king. Now the peace terms come to an end when he gets here. And so while today is 
a great day. Don't harden your hearts towards this good news. Peace terms with the returning king. Now, this gospel is proclaimed to those, it says here, who dwell on earth. And I just wanted to draw out something very important here. The word dwell, it means, it's an important word. It means to be comfortable with something, to be cozy in something, to be cozy in the world, to be apathetic toward any need for Jesus because the world has become enough for them. That's where the gospel is being proclaimed. It's being proclaimed to those who have gotten cozy with the world. Now, I'm going to just shed a little light on, on sort of my sleep pattern here uh, in life. I, moving to New England, I've fallen in love with the heated blanket. I'm, maybe I'm just getting old. I don't know. And, and not only that, but I love a, a weighted blanket. So I have a heated blanket and a weighted blanket on me. Now, my wife does not want any of that. And, but I'm all, I'm all sort of like, like cocooned under the, the heat and the, and the weight. And it's glorious. It's like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a little panini, a little pressed hot sandwich. It's awesome. I love it. I get so cozy. It's comfortable. It's great. The gospel is being preached to those who have gotten that cozy and comfortable in the world. And its pleasures, its comfort, its ease, and its values and the way in which we live. And the gospel is a confrontation to that coziness in the best ways because it's saying that's not it. That's not enough. And it's saying that Jesus is. And to those of you who are here, those of you who are younger, who are under my age, who have experienced a lot of coziness in this world. I want to say to you, you teenagers, you 20-somethings, 30-somethings, it's, it's not enough. You put your hope and trust in this, this world and get cozy with it. It's only going to disappoint you. Ultimately, it will crush you. It will disappoint you in unending ways throughout this life. And so don't get cozy with it. Hear the good news of what we have in, in Christ. And it's in that good news that we have the encouragement to keep holding on. Part of our holding on is making much of Jesus. So we are to make much of Christ to a people who have gotten cozy with the world. So let's say, hey, there's someone greater worth the worship. And let's point people in that way. The second encouragement that we find is that the world is fleeting. Look at verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Again, using that symbolic language to convey, convey spiritual realities. But what is this Babylon? Well, Babylon is a symbolic representation of the man-centered system of life set up as an antagonistic alternative to life with God. It references the world. It's it's a a symbolic picture of the world, the man-made, man-centered system of life that's set up as an antagonistic alternative to life with God. And And here, the return of King Jesus, Babylon, falls. The man-centered system of life that is antagonistically against God falls. So certain is its demise that it can be described as already destroyed. 
And so this is sort of piggies off, piggybacks off of the first encouragement that gospel is greater is to help us see that the world is fleeting. So don't affix your heart to something that will crumble under the return of King Jesus. Don't fix your, affix your heart to something that will disappoint, discourage, and ultimately crush as it crumbles under the weight of God's justice. The world itself is fleeting. That leads us then to see a very intense aspect of, of encouragement for us to keep holding on. And, it, and that's the third one, and that is justice is forever. That may not seem as overwhelming as an intimidating, but let's read it. Let's read verses 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. The fallen of verse 8 is given greater imagery and intensity and severity. In verses 9 through 11, it's hard to read as it reveals millions of people whose hardened hearts sunk them down further in their rejection and rebellion of God. And now they experience divine justice. It's a staggering scene and it should make us feel uncomfortable. To see that God's justice for sin is forever. It is overwhelming, unrelenting. And the scariest thing of all, it is completely, totally, and wholly just. If we compare ourselves and other people laterally to one another, we would read this and be greatly offended find it offensive and awful in every way. But if we compare ourselves vertically rather than laterally, if we compare humanity vertically to the holiness of God, and this is a sobering scene, a picture of God's justice and his wrath poured out on those who have rejected him and rebelled against him. We don't fully comprehend it but we understand that it is justice. And this sobering reality helps us to keep holding on. We do so with great joy because of God's grace to rescue us from the hardness of our life, our sin, and our, to rescue us from our rejection and rebellion of God, that he would do that. It, staggering is overwhelming. And as a result, would encourage us then to hold on. And to to realize that the gospel is greater and to keep making much of it in this life to those around us. We have no idea who God will save. 
And so let's just be like the parable of the sower who's just thrown seed all over the place. Let's throw the gospel all around. Let's encourage those all around us to turn to King Jesus and to receive his peace terms now. So as we've considered so far, encouragements to hold on. The gospel is greater. The world is fleeting. Justice is forever. So keep holding on. And and then the fourth of the seven, so right in the middle, it's really a, a brilliant layout in this chapter. Right in the middle, we find this call to endure. And that's our third encouragement, the call to endure. Look at verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. At the heart of the seven encouragements, right in the middle is a simple call, endure. Follow God in how you live, keep trusting Jesus. Enduring is described as having a lifestyle that follows God. It says God's ways are the best ways, so I want to follow those ways. And and it goes on to say that it's zeroed in on Jesus, that our our call to endure, our enduring aspect of our faith is to be zeroed in on Jesus and to live our lives following after God and his ways. Not cozied up with all the pleasures and possessions and values of this world. Rather, our call to endure is to be much more enamored with God and his ways and our Savior, Jesus. Right there in the heart of this is this call to endurance. And and we are given a picture of how we can go about enduring. Focus on Christ and follow God's ways. There's a far greater joy in that, on the journey, and it leads to a far greater joy at the end. Fourth, or fifthly, excuse me, fifthly, our fifth encouragement is that death doesn't win. Look at verse 13. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So here we find that for the redeemed, for the redeemed people of God, death is not the last word. Death is not to be feared. For those in the Lord, death can be a frightening thing. Death can be a heavy thing for our hearts to experience as we watch our loved ones experience death. But death is not the end. Death doesn't get the last word. Death doesn't have the greatest word. Death isn't to be feared for those who are in the Lord. And I hope you also notice that in verse 13, we see the Trinity validating that death does not win. We first have a, a voice from heaven, which is, usually associated with the Father. We see that those who die in the Lord, that is the Son, are not to be overcome by death, and that we see the Spirit is affirming this reality that death does not win. So Father, Son, and Spirit, all in part of bringing about the victory over sin, death, Satan, evil, and restoring us right with God. This is to be great encouragement for us to keep holding on. That God is seeing this all the way through. He's not going to change and he's not going to bail. And there isn't going to be something that comes along that, that peels back God's grip on us in which we fall out of his care. No, 
No, he has us, Father, Son, and Spirit, all the way to the very end. So keep holding on. Just keep swimming. The final two encouragements from our chapter um, take up the remaining portion, and it's a very much more intense look at what has already been stated. And it's looking at it from the perspective of the arrival of King Jesus. So, so verses 6 through 13, we're looking forward as in terms of its encouragement. Verses 14 through 20 are at that moment when Christ returns. And the first thing that we find here in number 6 of our seven encouragements is that Jesus gathers in his people. Jesus gathers his people. Verses 14 through 16. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Again, we're in revelation. The symbolism is vivid. It, it, it's not necessarily be taken in a literal way, but it's conveying spiritual truths and realities for us. And, and here we find uh, Christ's return and, and this great harvest. So first of all, Son of Man is referred to in this passage, which is uh, a, 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 an Old Testament prophetic reference referring to the Messiah who would come, the, the one who would come and, and the Messiah King who would come and restore all the things that God purposed and promised to restore and that's Jesus. And so King Jesus, we're at King Jesus's return here. This is it. He's back kind of encouragement. And then we find that there's this great harvest. And harvest in the Bible is usually associated with the idea of redemption or gathering in uh, all of uh, the redeemed. And that means that none will be lost. None will be missed. None will be forgotten. None will be overlooked. And maybe you feel that way in life, in this world. Maybe you feel like you're lost and missed and forgotten and overlooked easily by those around you, your family and your friends or, or what have you. Have you experienced that hurt and heartache of being overlooked and forgotten, not cared about, easily misplaced in people's lives? I want you to be encouraged here. Yeah, your King, your Savior, your Jesus, he's not going to do that. He is gathering in all his people, all of them. None will be lost. Jesus will not miss you. He will not forget you. He will not overlook you. He will gather you in. So keep holding on. That leads us to the seventh encouragement, which is an even more intense um, encouragement uh, than what we, what we saw in in the uh, third one, in which justice is forever. And that is Jesus vanquishes his enemies. Let's read verses 17 through 20. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth, gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from a winepress as high as a horse's bridle 
for 100 or for 1,600 stadium. So here we see King Jesus crushing his enemies. A wine press is usually associated with judgment. It was used to crush grapes in order to, you know, begin that process of making wine. And the crushing imagery is to convey the seriousness of God's judgment over sin and evil. The 1,600 stadia is super symbolism of how complete and total and cosmic God's just judgment will be. It's four times four times 10 times 10, meaning none will be missed or overlooked. None of God's enemies will get to linger on, live on, be able to escape the coming judgment and rally up and and cause all kinds of problems uh, on Mount Zion. No, all who reject, all who rebel, all who double down on their hardened hearts toward God will be crushed. And here, this is seen at Christ's return of not only him gathering in his people, but vanquishing all of his enemies. As we consider these seven encouragements, the weightiness of them all, uh, it helps us see a couple of things. That there is an urgency to hold on. That this isn't a joke. That the world is condemned. And all who ride or die with the world will suffer the consequences. This is serious. And the good news, the gospel peace terms for the king, that a sovereign and gracious God saves sinners through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, and that all who trust in his life, death, and resurrection will be saved and gathered in, that's serious. And so if you're hearing those words right now, my hope is that your heart doesn't harden to them, but are actually drawn to them. It's serious. The urgency to hold on is real. Second thing that helps us see is not only the urgency to hold on, but the total completeness of when King Jesus returns. But there is a no doubt about it dynamic when Jesus returns. There's no doubt. He's going to gather in all his people. He's going to vanquish all of his enemies. And that's going to be it. And it's going to be sweet and it's going to be secure. And we're going to bound with joy forever. And that's going to be glorious. There's a completeness of when King Jesus returns. And this gives to us a comfort and confidence to hold on in, in this world, to keep King Jesus as the object of our faith, to keep him as our true north, to journey toward him, holding on to him as he holds on to us. I hope this encourages you. I hope that you would just keep swimming in waters murky and dark, the dangers deep and alluring, that you and I will just keep swimming, but we know where it ends. And the encouragement along the way is far greater than anything we'll experience in this life. So hopefully that brings to you timely encouragement this day. Keep holding on. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would do that. You would help us to hold on. That if any of us who have a weak and wobbly faith right now, that it would be strengthened and encouraged. And we see that you are with us and where you lead us will be great. It will be sweet and it will be safe and it will be secure. It will be glorious. So help us hold on until that day. We pray 
Help us to be people eager to help others come to know that same sort of hope. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's really nothing left to say.